Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobick. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. What a winter it hasn't been. I don't know about where y'all are from. Obviously, I'm in North Carolina. Uh, It's going to be 83 degrees this week and sunny. Last week, we were getting into the low mid-70s and the dogwoods are blooming. I have never seen dogwoods bloom this early in the year. Now, granted, I'm from Ohio. The dogwoods would bloom in April, which is my birthday month. So I always associate dogwoods with my birthday but here it's mid-february the dogwoods are out it's 83 degrees and sunny i don't even have seeds in little pots yet for my garden and i feel like i should be putting seedlings in the ground like next week it used to be that we would have something resembling winter here in the south now back in ohio we did have winter there was ice and snow and wind and misery down here when i moved down here in 05 I think that first winter we had a pretty bad ice storm that locked campus down for a while. Then in subsequent years, we had some snow, some ice. This year, it was just bitter cold for a few days over Christmas. And then all of a sudden, we're in the 60s. Now we're in the 70s and 80s. I don't know what's happening. I'm going to say aliens. uh, And let's just roll with that. So first off, I'd like to send my thanks out to everyone who listened to last month's episodes of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast and Stories from the Cabin. The Love Charms episode, according to the ACAST Insights feature, garnered 350 downloads. I've never had that many downloads on an episode. I don't know if I'm reading that data properly or if it's being collected properly, but 350 downloads, I don't know 350 people. And if those numbers are right, at least 350 people listen to it as of February 3rd, I think, 3rd or 4th. Of course, it's the 19th as I'm recording it. Those numbers tend to go down. I don't know how to read. Again, I don't know how to read this information. So I started off with like 350 some odd downloads for the Love Omens episode. I think now it's at like 219. Regardless, that's a lot of people I don't know who are listening to the show. And thank you. Thank you so much for downloading, for listening, and telling people about it. And that brings me to my next bit of housekeeping, feedback from listeners. I would love to hear from you guys. I get a lot of good comments and compliments from my friends over in the UK. I haven't heard too much from folks over here in the States, and especially in Appalachia. That's not to say I haven't heard anything at all from anyone over here. I do have a couple of friends who are also podcast hosts, specifically Appalachian podcast hosts, who have chimed in. But I would love to hear more feedback from folks in and out of Appalachia. I really don't care where you're from. Just, I want to hear your stories. I want to hear your folklore. You can always hit me up on appfolklorepod at gmail.com. I'm still on Twitter, though that seems to be fading. I'm on Mastodon, Instagram, and Facebook at App Folklore Pod. I'd love to hear from y'all. Tell me how I'm doing. Tell me some things that you'd like to hear me talk about, some things you think I should research. Send me articles. Send me books. To bring those two things together, sending me books and listener feedback, I've been kicking around the idea of starting up a Patreon. I've been hesitant because I was like, I don't know that I have that much content for 
Patreon for people who pay for the show. Then I got to thinking about all the things I have sitting around that I'm not using that might be of interest to some people. So I thought about putting cooking videos and recipes on the Patreon. But I have all these old church cookbooks and cookbooks I got from my grandparents. A nice collection on a shelf in my pantry. I don't use them as much as I should, as much as I want to. And I thought it'd be an interesting thing to kind of show you the recipe, where it came from, maybe a history of the food and the stories behind it, a la Folklore Food and Fairy Tales, Rachel over there. She was actually kind of an inspiration for this. I got to see her speak at the Romancing the Gothics lecture event, Goths for Breakfast. It was a lot of fun. It was an all-day event, and it was a donation. All the money contributed uh, provided meals for school children. But I got to see Rachel talk about folklore, food, and fairy tales, as she is often wont to do on her podcast. And it really inspired me to start using these cookbooks that I have lying around. And I thought maybe I could use that and incorporate that into Patreon in some way. I also have a lot of folklore and history that I want to talk about that isn't necessarily Appalachian. It's Appalachian adjacent. I went and saw a lecture at, sorry, it was a documentary at the North Carolina History Museum with my uh, lover and confidant. My girlfriend got tickets for us. And it was on the Rosenwald Schools. 5,300 schools built for formerly enslaved individuals and their children and their descendants all the way up into, I think like they said the 70s. These schools built all throughout the what they called the, the former Confederacy. And a lot of those are in Appalachia. So it's not specifically Appalachian or Appalachian folklore, but because of the location, I want to tell that story. It's a story that needs to be told but it doesn't really have a place on the Appalachian Folklore podcast specifically, as it is more of the history of education for African Americans in the South, but there are ties to Appalachia. I also have my own family's history published in a book from the 1850s that I would love to tell you all about. Again, it doesn't really have a place here on the podcast, but maybe I could do that on Patreon. I also want to include like deeper additional research for all those research nerds like myself out there, or unedited interviews. I want to start getting into interviews. I've got a few of them I'm I'm interested in doing. I need to schedule. I need to figure out how the software works first. But unedited video interviews with folks and put that on the Patreon as well. So just want to get your feedback. Let me know if that's something y'all would be interested in. If I get enough positive feedback, I'll, I'll kick that off maybe in the next couple of months. So enough with my rambling preamble, and I'll go ahead and get into this month's episode on Appalachian Folk Healers. I was originally going to title this episode Appalachian Grannies, but since the term granny is used as frequently and is as interchangeable with other titles like witch, granny witch, healer, medicine woman, or sometimes it's not used at all, I thought I'd stick to the more sterile academic umbrella title of folk healer. As we'll see, the folk practice of healing combines traditional customs from various ethnicities, countries, and religions, one of which being Christianity. And to title someone a witch hasn't historically always been a good thing, though, to be sure, that title is worn with pride in more recent years. The title given to any particular folk healer usually varied from town to town, holler to holler, or even family to family. In the episode of the Appalachian Homestead podcast from June 20th, 2022, titled 
Granny Women, one word, of Central Appalachia and the myth, all caps, of the Granny Witch. The host speaks with her guest about traditional herbal healing and how their grandmothers would never have called themselves a witch, nor would anyone else in their community. They would have never considered what they were doing to be witchcraft because they were good Christian women and therefore simply stuck to healing woman. The show notes for that episode also state that the title Granny Witch was given to these healers by outsiders, which we'll see shortly isn't true. I want to go ahead and list my sources up front since my rambling, I'm not going to keep quoting the title of their articles or websites. It just makes the flow easier. First source is Granny Witches of Appalachia from the Boonville Sentinel on September 7th, 2019. If y'all follow me on Twitter, this was the article I was talking about As I was reading this and doing my research, I came upon a YouTube video, and as I was watching it, the narrator's words sounded oddly familiar. And this was from about six months ago when the video was posted. Turns out he was plagiarizing this article, um, which I guess is a thing that people do still uh, unabashedly. And as a researcher and someone who values hard work, you can at least cite your sources. Don't steal people's stuff. It's not cool give credit where credit's due, and just do your own work. My second source was Appalachian Folk Magic and Granny Witchcraft by Patty Wigington from December 28th, 2019. The next article I used was from Atlas Obscura, so it was actually ended up being the backbone for this research. Always well-written articles, very well-researched articles on that website. It was called The Long Tradition of Folk Healing Among Southern Appalachian Women, by Beth Ward from November 21st, 2017. And lastly, The Deep Roots of Witchcraft in Appalachia by Casey Keeley from May 26th, 2021. It was essentially an interview with H. Byron Ballard, whose name pops up all over the place. You cannot research this topic without stumbling into articles written by or about her. And she will obviously come up time and time again in this episode. So, first and foremost... What is a granny? We referred to my paternal grandmother as granny, and when I told that to friends growing up, some of them thought that was strange, maybe because it's more of an archaic title, whereas grandmother or grandma are more common nowadays. Of course, this is also entirely regional. There's plenty of titles like Gigi, Mima, Mama, etc., referring to the same matriarchal position. The word grandmother is from the early 15th century, a combination of grand and mother, imagine that. Probably an analogy of the French grand-mère, which replaced the earlier grande-mère circa 1200, and the old English elder-mother. The word granny, spelled G-R-A-N-N-I-E, appears in the 1600s, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, most likely a diminutive and contraction of granum, a shortened form of Grandum or grandame. I'm not a native French speaker. I never took French. So if Corinne from Graveyard Coffee Talk wants to hit me up and let me know how to pronounce this stuff, I would appreciate it. Anyway, a shortened form of those two words rather than from grandmother. It simply and lovingly refers to a little old lady like uh, Baba or Babushka, as we would have said in my family when I was a little kid. I won't go into the history or etymology of which since entire careers are spent studying this. What I will briefly mention from my studies in fairy lore and its migration into the New World, by the time Europeans, and we're talking Scottish, Irish, English, German, Swiss, 
all those cultures who populated Appalachia initially. While they were making their way over here, fairy lore had been replaced with a more tangible belief structure. I'd read, and I, I can't remember where off the top of my head, it was either something by Simon Young or maybe Morgan Daimler, that witches replaced fairies because, you know, you, you can blame and persecute witches a lot easier than you can the hidden folk, right? And as that new folk belief became part of the European culture over the centuries, fairy belief was kind of left by the wayside by the time those immigrants, the Protestants, Puritans, came to the New World. It wasn't entirely gone because things like Tommyknockers did come over from the Cornish and Welsh immigrants. But over here, it was devils, or the devil, and his servants, witches, and God, and his ilk. I won't get into all of that again, because careers are spent on these topics. But suffice it to say, the title witch was often attached to cunning women, or fairy doctors, and other folk healers in the Old World, mostly Scotland and Ireland. Those practices came with the New World immigrants, as did the titles Granny and Witch, as colloquial terms for little old ladies who healed members of their communities. So, now, stepping out of etymology corner, I'll finally get into Appalachian folk healing. Thank you for indulging me. Byron Ballard, who I mentioned before, she popped up a lot in the Love Charms research. She is the senior priestess and co-founder of Mother Grove Goddess Temple in Asheville, North Carolina, or at least she was as of 2021 when the interview by Casey Keeley was written. She may still be, I'm not sure. She refers to folk healing as, quote, equal parts paganism, down-home Protestantism, and stubborn Southern practicality. It's essentially a nice little hodgepodge of various folk practices and beliefs. As the old world herbal healers, more animist than Christian, came to Appalachia, they very quickly encountered First Nations peoples who, as animists themselves, quickly educated these immigrants in the properties, both positive and negative, of the indigenous flora and fauna. Patty Wigington writes, As European settlers arrived in the colonies during the 18th century, they brought with them the traditional folk magic and healing modalities of their home countries. Primarily women, these healers used the concepts they'd learned in Scotland, England, and Ireland. Once they settled in, they met their Native American neighbors, which is a really nice way of saying colonized, I guess, um, who taught them about the plants, roots, and leaves indigenous to the mountains of North Carolina, Tennessee, and beyond. They also blended their practice with German immigrants who arrived in Pennsylvania and began migrating south and west. Soon, they began incorporating the knowledge brought to the mountains by people of African descent escaping slavery in the South. It's important to remember constantly that there's Christianity lurking in the shadows. What's present here at this time in the New World are paganistic practices, as these once persecuted, now persecuting Puritans would say, coupled with religious fervor. Beth Ward writes, Religious xenophobia saw many non-Protestants classified derogatorily as witches and persecuted, though many were simply lay healers, practitioners of herbal medicine whose philosophies were rooted in a spirituality that venerated nature instead of a single monotheistic deity. A few historians have speculated that these potentially pagan practitioners went underground or fled to the New World, where their methodologies could have been suppressed or absorbed by Christianity. 
I dropped the word animism in there. For those of you not familiar with animism or animistic belief, Sarah Amos, author of the Atlanta Witch Blog, describes animistic thought as this. To them, spirit is very present in the world. It's present in the rock. So they go and pray to the rock, or they pray at the rock if someone is sick. It's a belief that basically, and yes, I know this is reductionist, all things have a soul. Trees, rocks, birds, wind, water, whatever. Essentially, it's becoming one with nature, as we would say. I, myself, tend to lean this way because I will thank a beautiful sunrise as I'm drinking my coffee on the front porch in my rocking chair, but I wouldn't necessarily identify as an animist. I do feel more normal when I'm fishing a reservoir than I ever did in a church, but, you know, that's me, and I'm not, I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum. Continuing on. However, despite these strong animistic folk practices, T.J. Smith, executive director of the Foxfire Museum and Heritage Center in Mountain City, Georgia, says, Many mountain healers practice their folk medicine through a strictly Protestant lens, believing they were fulfilling a duty as Christ followers to help those in need. Some, he says, would even balk at the notion that grinding herbs to heal a sore, performing a ritual bath, or saying a prayer or chant to cure a burn was connected in any way to pagan practice or ideology. They believed that their ability to use plants in prayers to heal the sick was a gift from the divine. Beth Ward echoes this in her article, saying that some southern Appalachian natives would never think to call it anything but the work of the Lord. What we're seeing here is a marriage of old and new ways with the singular intention of helping one's community. It's unavoidable, right? These early settlers weren't going to give up their folk beliefs and practices, and Christianity certainly wasn't going anywhere. Mix in the drastic isolation of some of these communities throughout the vastness of Appalachia, the rarity of traveling doctors, the inevitability of birth, injury, illness, and death, and one quickly sees how the importance of the folk healer, the granny, becomes paramount to a community. To put it another way, from the article Granny Witches of Appalachia, when it takes half an hour or more to get into town, and town is little more than a supply and feed store, self-reliance and strong beliefs become crucial. In the old days, hospitals were often too far away and a little suspicious to mountain people. When accidents and illnesses happened, people relied on granny witches. These traditional folk healers were skilled in herbalism, home remedies, spells, and energy work. And I want to add to that dowsing and divination as well, things like tassiography or the reading of tea leaves and coffee grounds, omens, divination, all those little sayings I covered in episodes on death omens and love charms, those fell under the purview of the folk healer as well. Continuing with the article, Granny Magic healed sicknesses, birthed babies, removed curses, and predicted the weather. In the far reaches of Appalachia, granny witches were often the sole source of medical care and spiritual guidance. Their practices were simple, inventive, and always grounded in the natural world. Because of their crucial role within their communities, the folk healers often held as much prominence and power as the men. Maybe it was because of that connection to the divine, or perhaps it was because they held that knowledge and understanding of how the natural world around them could heal or harm. And on that note, Ward writes, The granny would arrive at the home of a mother in labor with a bag of herbs, roots, and leaves. She would use these to help the mother safely deliver a child, and then might recite a verse from the Bible or a protective charm 
to keep both mother and baby healthy, especially in a time of high infant and perinatal mortality. They knew that catnip tea or red alder tea kept infants from getting hives. They prescribed stewed-down calamus root to help soothe colic. They put sulfur in the soles of shoes to help ease flu symptoms. And if someone came to them with a bad burn, they knew that blowing smoke and chanting the right words could talk the fire out. Byron Ballard gives an example of this in her book, Staubs and Ditchwater. She writes, They didn't call it a spell. It was just the words you said if somebody had a bad burn. And then the burn got better. It wasn't fancy. It didn't require a special outfit or special ritual tools. Indeed, all it required was repeating the following chant three times while making a counterclockwise motion with her hands over the burned area without touching it. Come, three angels from the north. Take both fire and frost. I've seen a lot of this throughout my reading of the friend of the show, Frank C. Brown Collection of North Carolina Folklore. As I said, the Bible as divination method showed up a lot in the Love Charms episode, but it's also seen a lot in divining guidance concerning births, deaths, illness, agriculture, husbandry, etc. I'm no expert on the Bible, though I do have access to one. But more commonly, it's excerpts from psalms that are said while acting out whatever ritual or creating whatever poultice is necessary. That's not to say the rest of the Bible is off limits. It's all fair game, depending on what passage fits each particular situation. Tracing these more religious or religious-ish folk healing practices back to the cunning folk of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and to the fairy doctors is what got me interested in this topic in the first place. This episode here is more of a jumping off point for future episodes. I can't slap it neatly into just one, and there's so many topics to jump off into. The idea that the backwards, backwoods folk chewing roots for this and that and passing babies under a round a donkey X number of times isn't something unique to Appalachia. I mean, some of it is and some of it isn't. But a lot of it not only goes back a few hundred years to parts of the UK, but to parts of the Gullah Nation, to Africa. And yeah, a lot of it started here with First Nations people. And I want to be able to speak with members of these communities in the future to hopefully have them explain to you and me how some of these things that you might think are unique to the people of this region actually have their roots in places you may not expect. Or if you do, like me, you want to know as much about them as you can. So, as always, I'd like to put a call out to folks who are members of these communities who would want to speak with me about the history of some of these or any traditional Appalachian folk practices. It doesn't necessarily have to be about folk healing, though I wouldn't be opposed to adding more information about that to my mental and physical libraries. I would just love to hear from y'all who know more about this than I do. And as I said at the top of the show, you can always contact me on the social medias and through email appfolklorepod at gmail.com I'd like to close the main body of this episode with a quote from T.J. Smith one that I found especially poignant These people were ingenious and incredibly pragmatic practical thinkers who had an understanding of their land and their world that far outreaches anything most of us could claim today They were resolute in their stubbornness for living and just because they may have been isolated for most of their lives they were still incredibly intelligent and contributed a great deal to the American story. To close out this episode, I am going to read from Old Time Country Wisdom and Lore by Jerry Mac Johnson. This one is for my buddy John. He's the gentleman who did the cover art 
and actually made me some stickers. Maybe I'll put that up with the Patreon stuff. Who knows? So to thank him for that, I'm going to read the section, When to Fish. He's my fishing buddy. We love to go fishing. It's getting to be about that time, you know, with the 70, 80 degrees and typical February weather. There are many theories, some of them conflicting, as to the most favorable times for fishing. The following are the recommendations of rural folk from different parts of the country. The best time to fish is when the barometer is high or rising, when a storm is imminent, after a brief storm at any time of the year, during a steady light rain, when rain has just stopped, when the wind is from the south or west, or while any offshore breeze is blowing, a slight breeze breaks up the surface of calm water, hiding the fish from spotting you, when the moon is between new and full, when water is clear, when water is murky, on an overcast day, when water is rising, when a lake starts to drop, when oak leaves are the size of squirrel ears, when the dogwood blossoms, so we gotta go, John, right now, when ants build high mounds, when spider webs are taut, when cattle are up and grazing, old-timers say that if they're resting, you can bet that's what the fish are doing, when the water temperature is between 55 and 74 degrees Fahrenheit, a good fishing thermometer should be used, at the crack of dawn during hot, dry months. Larger fish, in particular, are active during darkness and into the dawn, one hour before and after high tide, one hour before and after low tide, on a calm evening for bass and trout, on stormy days, especially during warm months, for pike, pickerel, and walleyes, after the first thunderstorms of spring for catfish. Since catfish usually don't bite until the weather is warm enough for a thunderstorm, this claim has some validity. Since John and I love to go catfishing, I think we're going to try that one out. And that's it for this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. I'll have another episode of Stories from the Cabin on the 15th, during that time, I will be in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. Maybe I'll take some pictures, post those on the social media, and you can see how happy I am when I feel like I'm at home. As I said, I'd love to hear from you. Fill me with education. Give me reasons to keep researching and podcasting. As my buddy Owen Staten says, sometimes it gets lonely podcasting when you're just talking to a computer screen or talking to a wall. And to hear from you, it really makes my day. Until next time, y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website shows.acast.com slash AFP. You can find me at appfolklorepod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at appfolklorepod.com at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at Inkwell Graphic Design. Thanks again for listening.